everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're talking about how to invest properly. Via, properly. Via Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, um, and me teaching my daughter Danielle how to do this. (laughs) And why should I think I could do that? Why in the world, indeed? I mean, I've written a couple books. 30 years of investing experience. 30 years of experience. 35, 40, 35, getting more, getting I, it's a few years of investing experience and, you know, some decent success investing. I'm not Warren Buffett, but I can see that uh, I would be a much worse investor if I didn't know how to do this. And um, I think that if you look at the success that people have as investors consistently over decades, you're going to find that people who invest the way Buffett does it, um, who take the time to learn it have a consistently massively high rate of return compared to everybody else. Hmm. I would argue double the rate of return Hmm. compared to everybody else. If everybody else is getting eight and those of us who are following Buffett are out there getting 16 or more, which when you look at hedge fund managers who actually do it the way Buffett does, you see those kinds of returns over long periods of time. You know, 25, 20 but I think you just year. said the key thing, which is long periods of time. Long periods of time. You can't look at it in even, I wouldn't even look at it lately in a five-year period um, compared mm. to the market because the market has been on such a tear for 10 years after such a crash, right? So it's coming out of this deep valley, uh, given jet fuel by the Federal Reserve, reducing interest rates and making it basically there's no other investments for people to do than real estate and stocks, which are the two big consumer investments. So bonds are no good, and bonds are getting rapidly worse as they start to raise interest rates. So it's you know it's still the only game in town, and as long as it is, it'll maybe keep going up in spite of how um, how far it's already gone, and that makes it tough for us to invest. Now, often people call us value investors. I think there's some truth in that, but not a lot of truth in that. <laughs> it's some truth. Value investors. Um, there's many many different kinds of value investors, but many of them buy 50 to 100 stocks and consider themselves value investors. And Ben Graham himself, who taught Buffett, often owned 200 stocks. And Buffett has gone a real different way than that. We talked about this a few episodes ago, and I just think Buffett's uh, sort of the long arm of Buffett, like the long arm of the law, has been so long and covered investing now for so many years that to me, value investing is equivalent to Warren Buffett. Mm. Maybe, not, maybe not to somebody who has more of a you know perspective on it looking way back to the 20s and 30s. Honestly, I, I think that there are very few, quote, value investors who invest the way Buffett does. I really mm-hmm. don't see it. I mean, the, the, the mass of funds that are calling themselves value funds and there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of them. Oh. None of them invest like Buffett. They're oh. all fully invested all the time. They're 50 to 100 stocks. They're buying everything. They're turning it over. They don't hold forever. They, I mean, it's so many, such a different world. Um, and the reason is real simple. And we've discussed this before. It's just about impossible for a normal fund manager to hold on to client capital 
um, if he's sitting in cash for long periods of time while the market's going up. He just can't do it. Yeah. Has to invest. It's, that's a fascinating comment on perspective because my perspective, not having the years of experience that you do, is that the people I have looked at, obviously because they're the ones you've told me to look at, so the people I've looked at are the kind that invest into a small number of companies, don't care about being diversified across industries or anything, and totally do like Warren Buffett style investing. So to me, that's value investing. I don't even have a clue that there's a thousand or whatever you just said, like many, many, many funds out there that call themselves value investors and yet are buying a thousand stocks and and just all over the place and totally diversified and there's just no way you can do that kind of research into that many companies there's you, no way i love hearing this from you you are 100 percent <laughs> right and so I've drunk the kool-aid drunk is the, the kool-aid and so what they do is uh, the investors that do it the way we do do their own homework because they can't rely on somebody else to do the work and and find these deals. It's just like you're, you're going to find one a year or two a year, maybe, okay? And you're going to add up to maybe 20 in your lifetime that you decide to buy. And Warren has said very clearly, if you do that and you do it right and stay focused and be patient, uh, wait for your opportunity to buy on sale, um, you get four out of 20 right, you're going to be rich. So, it, but these guys can't do that. They don't have the patience by virtue of their career. Their career does not afford them the luxury of sitting in cash for a couple of years like Buffett's been doing. Munger has been in cash. Munger has not bought a stock in three years. I mean, this, this, is, this is something you have to get that to do really good investing, you have to be willing to wait for the bar to go down lower and lower and lower until it's so low, you know you can't lose. You know yeah. you're going to win. And that doesn't happen every day. I mean, we're waiting. A lot of us are waiting in cash right now. Buffett's got $120 billion in cash. A lot of very good investors are camped out in cash right now, anticipating the next recession. And boy, you can see the wobble going on in, in the market right now as the market moved down 500 points yesterday. We don't watch the market day to day, but we're watching it here at the top to wonder if this thing is going to crumble. And um, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's a big article that just came out in the Wall Street Journal about how the yield curve is starting to to roll over and invert. And when that happens, it has predicted every single recession that we've had going back, I don't know, 100 years. And there's only been one false positive. Okay, I don't even want to ask this question. Go ahead. What's a yield curve? <laughs> I know you didn't want to ask that question. And this isn't a final thing. It's just I just want to say that these are the the indicators are starting to roll out now, one after the other. So we've got the Schiller we've talked about, right? Schiller PEs through the roof. We've got the Wilshire GDP ratio, which is also through the roof, both screaming that the market's overpriced. And now we have um I mean, like Professor DeMorden at, at NYU is the best valuation guy for academics that there is, has recently said that when the when the 10-year T-bill starts rolling up toward about 4%, he's going he's gonna to be very leery of putting capital into the market. 
So mm. here we are with the 10-year T-bill rolling up toward 3% as they're raising interest rates. And um, so we're on our way to 4 And what happens when you have a 10-year T-bill that's at 3% and you start raising up the short-term rates of a two-year T-bill, if you raise your two-year T-bill to where the two-year and the 10-year are paying the same rate of return, uh-huh. they're both at 3%, let's say. Okay. Then what you're looking at is a situation where there's a lot of concern about the future. A lot of concern about the future interest rates. Like there's not going to be inflation. There's going to be deflation and long-term deflation and a, and a crappy environment for the economy and nobody's consuming. There, that would be what the long-term low 3% would look like. And then as you have the short-term rate go up, what what is happening is essentially the price to rent money stops making sense. In other words, you should you should pay a less price for renting money for two weeks or two years than you would for 10 years. Okay. Wouldn't that make okay. sense? So here's what I just heard. Okay. The interest rate paid out on T-bills of various terms is not the same yet, but might be the same at some point. Right, but it's getting very and, close. And, and it's getting close. And so... Uh, that's something to look at. Yes. Is that an answer to what the yield curve is? Or are yes. we talking about different subjects? When the yield curve inverts, it means that the short-term interest rate has risen above the long-term interest rate, which is historically oh. not not really sustainable. Which, and when you say interest rate, are you talking about like the LIBOR interest rate or the T-bill? T-bill interest rate okay. is typically what they're looking at. So really, you're looking at the, the two-year versus the 10 years, the typical uh, uh, spread in time. And as interest rates rise on these short-term notes because of inflation rising or the Federal Reserve is taking off the, the pressure it's done to keep yields down, as that's starting to happen, if there isn't a concurrent uh, optimism about the long-term future, then the long-term rates don't rise with them, and you get this inversion. It, they should be long-term oh. rates more, short-term rates less. Yes. Right? You shouldn't get paid more on a short-term loan than you do on a long-term loan. And when You, you should do, get paid more on a long-term loan because right. it's a bigger risk because we don't know what's going to happen. Now. Right. You got you got to pay more for the, for the time risk. Very well done. And therefore, you get this, what's called an inversion. They go upside down. And when the yield curve flips like that, it is a screaming warning that within the next 24 months or so, you're going to have a big recession. And it's called it right every time so far. But you're Except saying so one. the two-year is higher than the 10-year is what yep. you're saying. Yep. And, and just by a thing. tad, just by a tad, that's all it takes to to throw that red flag up. And it's very close right now. The inversion of what we just said, which is the long-term view is actually quite confident then? No, the long-term view and does is- does it justify raising the interest rate because of all the risk? Well, it goes the other way. It's like when you have deflationary depression, then your interest rates are coming down, right? Nobody will borrow anything because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. And so when you when you start to head to recession, the, the longer-term fear kicks in, right? I mean, people are well, like- Well, the short-term would 
still be optimistic. Short term might be forced upwards by uh, other events. For example, the Federal Reserve is actively raising the short term interest rates. They're just raising their rates, and that drives up the short-term rates. And um, those rates have been going up without affecting the long-term rates. They've been sort of a little up to flat. And so as these things start to go to inversion, we get closer and closer to signaling a recession. Um, we have lots of news out there right now that's scary that would prompt us toward being concerned about recession. The most obvious and the biggest headlines are the trade war, that's starting up potentially between the United States and China. Yes, which, which we talked about last time. We talked time. about last time. Which A little is, bit. Mm, mm, but mm, that's mm. what led us to put options in Chipotle. Mm. It did. <laughs> which nice I transition. know a lot of people are very excited about before you go on a 10-minute <laughs> monologue. <about Right. laughs> All right. So let's let's do get to that. So oh, if, yes, we, let's. if we think that this market is about to crumble, and we own a company that is uh, very profitable for us, but has the potential to continue to, to be even higher. The stock could go even higher, should go even higher, because we're, we're, we're figuring out the value. Remember, we're looking at the difference when we're looking at an investment between price and value. Right, honey? Right. Price and value. So if we say that Chipotle, for example, we think is worth from 510 to 650 dollars so really a loose ballpark you know i don't know for sure but given the the analysis that i've run i can get into that range so 510 to, to 650 in that ballpark i'm pretty comfortable with you're saying that's your sticker price intrinsic value yep. of the yep. company yep sticker price intrinsic value um that's probably what it's really worth assuming you know, assuming a reasonable growth of, of the company. And then the higher end, you start to assume some, you know, aggressive things about what might happen with Chipotle. Okay, like, okay, they're going to put in a second make line. They're going to have drive-throughs. They're going to open more stores because drive-throughs, you can have them everywhere. Um, and we're going to assume a fairly aggressive growth into the future. And all of that would come back to maybe 650. But yeah. remember, I'm judging yep. this. This is really important you remember this. I'm judging this based on my criteria for investing, which is I want a 15% per year minimum rate of return. And that's very important to keep in mind because hedge because fund managers, particularly mutual fund managers, have no such constraint on their view of the value of a business, right? Many of them are just modern portfolio theory guys. And whatever the price is, is whatever the price is. Whatever uh -huh. the price is, is the value. That's it. Price and value are the same. So they're not thinking about anything. So just, hey, if this keeps growing, it's going to keep going up because it's worth every penny of uh, 400 and whatever it is today, right? Worth yeah, every penny of that. What you're talking about with this valuation method here is a method that we put forth in very clear detail in our book, Invested, which you can find anywhere. And just so people know who haven't, read that section, you can find the equation, you can see what it is my dad's talking about, and especially the 15% minimum annual rate of return is right there in the book. Yep. So this company, Chipotle, has already been as high as $760 a share. Yeah, okay? that's right. Before mm -hmm. they had the E. coli scare. So mm -hmm. from the point of view of 
the vast majority of fund managers out there, this thing's going back to 760 a share. Oh, I mean, I would say if you listen to all the stuff they're saying about the company, so Chipotle recently brought in a new CEO from Taco Bell who did this huge turnaround at Taco Bell and is now expected to do the same at Chipotle and um, is making all the right noises and statements about that. And by the way, there's a really big investor call tomorrow, dad, because remember when you chastised me greatly about not knowing what was going on with Chipotle because I am an investor. Total disclaimer, I'm an investor in Chipotle. Nice. Um, I now know about things like special investor calls. I'm probably not gonna, this is such an aside, I'm probably not gonna listen to it real time. I just like, <laughs> I do better when I can read a transcript, but I do know that it's happening. So so that's what's going on with Chipotle. That's kind of the background here of I can totally see other investors just on a pure logic, common sense view of the company. They were at, let's say, 750. They dropped down a whole bunch to what, like 350 or something? 260. Oh, 260. I think they touched it 250 for a moment. Um, yeah, way down. Based on all, I mean, it wasn't just the E. coli. Like there was some slide because like the queso launch went horribly, and there was a bunch of stuff that happened that wasn't so good, and uh, and then the E. coli thing was a really big deal for them. So the stock price just slid like crazy, and so the theory would go. Tell me if you think I'm wrong on this. Just on pure common sense, okay. Chipotle's still a good company. Everything's the same. If they just had that bad PR. And if they can just get everything back on track, they'll go back to 760. And then anything new that they add to their offerings, as you said, drive-throughs, opening new stores, all the growth stuff they already had had planned and had pulled back on because of these problems, they should go higher than 760 would be the argument, I would think. Yes, it is. That is the modern portfolio theory argument. And it is just But absolutely... I mean, that makes sense to me. Well, are you about to say it's absolutely stupid? Because oh that makes it's so stupid. It's completely stupid. <laughs> it's like it's like saying that oh, the value of a company like like a Chipotle is just like the value of a Picasso. It's what any idiot would pay for it on the margin. So if Picasso sold for forty million to some, who knows why, right? And then and now I can buy it for twenty million. I'm getting it for half off. This is modern portfolio theory. This is plain and simple. And this is, of this course, is what, common sense. Oh my God, this is so stupid. It's beyond belief. This is what has people buying houses, you know, that's right, at absurd prices. I'm not saying it's the right thing, but this is why people do it. Yeah, because you think, all right, so the market, it's not, it's not out of nowhere either. It's saying, okay, the market priced this thing at 750 already done we have that data it's in the bank i can see it mm -hmm. then they had all these problems mm -hmm. by pure thinking okay i can see this going back to where it was in terms of the business mm -hmm. and where it was in the market when the business was doing what it's do what it should be doing well, was a, 750 but well, there's a fundamental error there and that is that the assumption is that it was somehow rational to be at 750 yes. That's correct. <laughs> why, why would you make that leap? That's why, what if it was completely irrational for it to be at 760? It was the, the product of greed and, and uh, uh, fear of being left behind 
on the part of fund managers? What if it had nothing to do with being rational? Then you wouldn't be so calm about, oh, yeah, it's going to be at 760. Except, of course, that the market is still just as freaking irrational as it ever has been. And since the vast majority of people think exactly like you just said, that it was a 760, yeah. it's going to go back to 760. The greed is starting to kick in there. The only question is how fast is it going to get there, right? How safely will it go is the real problem behind us. Um, they're going to bid it all the way up there. And that's a real problem for my kind of investing. That's a real problem. It's very, very hard for, for me to sit in a company as it goes completely to irrational pricing, right? I love it when it's irrationally priced low. That's fun because I can mm -hmm. buy it. But when it goes to irrationally priced high, it gets really nuts because the emotion kicks in on me just like it would on anybody else. The greed button starts to get punched. And I start thinking, man, I just keep it in here, right? So I'm just going to keep the money in there and watch this thing go. It's going to go to 760 for sure. And then it's go beyond. It's like Buzz Lightyear or something. And it's like, okay, well, I'll just ride this through, right? I'll just ride this as far as it goes. I'll ride this thing up all the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to ride it. Well, the problem is you What's miss the this. <laughs> You miss these opportunities, okay? So let me give you, Chipotle, again, remains a cautionary tale in so many different ways. Let me give you a new cautionary tale based on Chipotle. Okay. You ride at the 760 because that's how you're going to play, get every last penny, right? Even though it was fully valued at about 550 and then some, really fully valued around 500. And this is back when, uh, when the, it was doing well, uh, following the big recession, um, it went to 550 in about, oh, December 2014, 15. And that's when I was getting out. I'd gotten in at about 55 bucks and I wrote it to about 550, something like that and got out. And then I had to watch in agony as it went to 760 without me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did you just say you bought it at $55 a share? Yeah. And then you sold it at 550? Yeah. Ish? Yeah. That's blowing my mind i have no words well it took years right well of years course it there. always takes years but here's the real horrible thing is it went to 760 and i had to watch it do that yeah okay now okay. other people just kept staying in it always just yeah. stay in it and it went to 760 and they were so happy they weren't me and had sold right and yeah. then here comes the crisis and down it goes like a brick but now the philosophy that says just stay with it it's always priced correctly is now it's priced correctly at 353 by, you know, 2016 or so. And then it goes up, up, up to 500 when the news that Bill Ackman is buying into a big chunk of the company comes out. And then another incident with norovirus and down it goes like a brick out of no real good reason. And then it goes clear down to $250 a share. And then it goes all the way back up here, right? So here's the thing. You get out at 550, you can buy it back at 260 because you have the cash. Mm -hmm. If you stayed in from 760 to 250, you don't have anything to buy it with. So which is better? Getting out at something just above intrinsic value, and if it gets reset to something that's on sale, you buy it back. Or is it better to just ride it through these big changes all over the place? And it is what it is, whatever happens. And but wait, you're offering a false choice. 
because the choice is not ride it up, 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 and then all of a sudden it falls, you know, more than 50% of its price because I think it took a while for that to happen, right? Yeah, How long took, did that take? Uh, the chart? It took one. So what two, I'm suggesting three. here <laughs> is if you're somebody who's paying attention, surely you could sell our minuscule number of shares. It's not like we're moving around $100 million. So surely we could sell our shares within a few days of things starting to fall and maybe still, you know, make a higher profit than we would have otherwise, thanks to our riding it out. But how do you know where the top is? I mean, I mean how do I you mean, know? It's a huge problem. Because <laughs> it's always going up and down, up and down, up and down, big swings, right? So yeah. here, here's the two choices that, that we have as Warren Buffett students. Because Buffett's okay. done it two different ways. All right. Okay. So we have early Buffett, choice number one, and we have later Buffett. So early Buffett is a guy trying to become wealthy. I would think most of us would feel a little more like early Buffett than later Buffett, which is a guy that's very, very rich and has become so large it's difficult to move in and out of companies. Yeah, let's ignore that. Side let's ignore later Buffett because later Buffett is stay in it no matter what. As long yeah, as it's a great it's company, even, as long yeah. as it's a great company, just ride through it. He's ridden Coca-Cola from being up at, I don't know, 75 all the way down to 40. 35 and ridden it back to wherever it is now. So he's not, he's, and he said, and even in the late 90s, he was so big, he couldn't be nimble enough to get in and out of stuff. But that's not early Buffett. Early Buffett was fixed on getting out of stuff as it, as it approached intrinsic value. So mm. he had a, a view of what intrinsic value was. Okay, Chipotle's worth 600. And as it approaches 600, he exited and then moved the money someplace where the volatility of money, that is the, the rate it would grow, would continue to be high. And the, the theory here is really quite good. You want to hear it? Yes. Okay. The, the theory is that as a company rises to intrinsic value, then the velocity of growth will begin to decelerate drastically from when it was valued at, let's say, $100 a share, and you bought it at 50, and then over the next year, it went back to 100. There, the growth rate was 100% a year. So enormous velocity of growth. Now, once it's back to 100, it's back at intrinsic value, its velocity of growth of your investment should be the growth rate of the company, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Now, what if you've got Wrigley's chewing gum here? It was $100, it went down to 50, or it's got $100 of value, it goes to 50, you buy it at 50, a year later, it's back up to 100, the recession's over, whatever, and boom, you just doubled your money at 100% growth rate in one year, and now Wrigley's will continue to grow for the next 30 years at 4%. Okay. Now, what if you had another place to put the money? Wouldn't you wanna move it? Yes, of course. Yes, we had this conversation. Yeah, this is called velocity. We should move the money once it reach in, reaches intrinsic value if there's another place to put it that is better. That's very, very important. And Huge right now, if. right now, we're faced with this terrible situation where we have a lot of money yeah. in cash and there's no real place to put it. See okay. the aforementioned beginning of our conversation <laughs> right. about how it's <laughs> difficult to be a value investor right now. Right. So 
I'm not really seeing the problem with with the like ride it out. Yeah. Theory. So so really, the only issue is uh, at this point, um, getting back to our original desire to talk about put options here, um, is do we want to protect ourselves from the downside? So this could be a very volatile stock. This announcement that's coming out tomorrow could be very volatile. It could send the stock down to 400. It could send it to 300. I don't know what they're going to say, right? Totally. Yeah. So here comes this announcement. And on the announcement, the stock could crumble. And the value of having a view of, of or the importance of having a view of the value of the business relative to the price is that you can do things with options trades um, to protect yourself if you have a very strong sense of where this should go. Okay? All right. So I'm going to fully disclaim here that I don't know anything about options. I have <laughs> tried to memorize how they work, and it will not stay in my brain. Well, they feel, are so bloody confusing. Feel good about it. They don't stay in anybody's brain. It's the only way the to get it in your brain is to ride the bike. You just have to just do it. And after yeah. a while, it starts to make sense. I can see that. So yeah. options are also not even something that's available to everyone. You have to meet certain criteria in your brokerage account in order to even be able to trade and buy options. And they are a highly risky uh, investment or shall we say speculation choice. Which is totally not true. Oh, come on! <laughs> It's completely true. That was the lawyer think, in you talking. It's not true. Yeah, it's the lawyer in me because it's true. And no. I want everybody to be aware of what's going on here with these things that you're about to talk about. If you decide you're going to gamble with options, it becomes true. But options were originally created so that farmers could reduce their risk, not increase their risk. Hmm. Did you know that? No. No. So, no. Miss Lawyer, let me explain. The All right, but this is for education and entertainment only. Your always, explanation. Always education want... and entertainment only. Yeah. Don't go out and do this because if you do it wrong, then Daniel's 100% right. This stuff can bite you in the butt. If you are not a knowledgeable uh, with options, you should stay away from them. Or what you should do really is learn, and that means open up a paper trading account at a broker, which means you're not using real money, uh, and do it with a brokerage that has good options information. You know That can be uh, TradeStation, Thinkorswim, Schwab, E-Trade, uh, Fidelity. They all got options stuff on their brokerage site, and they all have paper trading capability. Interactive Brokers, another one. Um, and just play with it and see what happens and, and, and try to think about it the way I'm going to teach you guys right here. And that is that Options were originally created, or a version of options were created, so that farmers who had wheat in the ground wouldn't be at risk for uh, huge price drops that would cause them to lose money by the time the wheat was ready to harvest. So mm -hmm. what they would do is they would find someone who wanted the other side of the trade. They're a wheat seller, and they wanted to find a wheat buyer, right? So you could see how a baker who wants flour at a great price would and if he liked the price let's say in june it's a pretty good price i can make pizza and make a make a profit if i can buy my flour at this price he might want to lock in the price of the wheat at that price of june price but he can't yeah. get the wheat until september and so the farmer 
who also agrees, okay, that's a pretty good price for a bushel of wheat. I'll make money at that price. Then the farmer wants to lock in the price in June as well. So they could come to an agreement if they could find each other. And this is where uh, you get into the world of the, the Chicago Board of Exchange and commodities and futures and all this kind of stuff. And out of that came a much more uh, liquid kind of market for options of all sort, not just wheat and flour. But you'd be able to hedge your bet by using the options on stocks, on a lot of stocks. I think about 3,000 of the 11,000 stocks we look at have options that trade on them. The big ones almost all do. Okay? So when we're looking, when I'm saying that options are not just automatically a risky thing, what I mean by that is that I can use an option right here with Chipotle to reduce my risk dramatically. And that's what I wanted to show you guys. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'm just going to point to it, and you can Google some of this data uh, and some of the names that I'm going to give you, and you can kind of read about it and see if you can make sense out of it. But Wait, one... we're not going to spend a lot of time on it? No, I'm going to... You're just not going to really explain this thing after teaching it, explain it, it for I'll two say... episodes? <laughs> okay, I'm going to explain it right now, but it doesn't take forever. <laughs> All right. All right. What so... is this called, right? A put option? What this is called is um, two... I'm going to do show you two options. I'm going to show you a put option and a call option. And this oh, no. trade has a name in, in investing. Let me tell you right now, this is going to take us more than. No, no, we got this. No, we you got just this. told me two different ones? Yeah, it's easy. Okay. <sighs> so write this down, everybody. This is called a collar. C-O-L-L-A-R. A collar? Like a shirt collar? Yeah, like a shirt collar. All right. Now, this trade begins by owning stock in this case, in Chipotle, um, that is at a price I want to protect. And it is. It's at $464 right now. And this is a price that I want to protect. All right. I don't want to have it go much below that without selling. Okay. Okay. But I also think it's going to bounce around a bit on different announcements over the next year. I think ultimately my view is it's going to go up above 500 probably over the next year. And I'd like to benefit from most of that if possible. In other words, I don't want to get stop lost out of this thing. I don't want to have an earnings announcement come out or a, or an announcement like it's coming out tomorrow that knocks the price down to, uh, you know, to 400. And I've got an order in there that says sell it if it goes below 460. Because I'm mm -hmm. going to get taken out of this thing. I don't want to get taken out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I want to be in it to run. I mean, you upward. could just cancel that order. But by the time you do, it's already gone by. Yeah, I just I mean, don't you have. Could do it like, you could do it like today. No, it doesn't work <laughs> no? like that. No, no, <laughs> no. When you when you put in the orders, I mean, you can't move that. I, I suppose if you watch it every minute, but I'm not going to do that. So no, I've I got mean, another like you way. You could just not have a stop loss order. Right, you could not have a stop loss order, in which case it goes from 464 to 400. And now you don't know what, what, what's, where's it going to go from here. Ultimately, the news must have been bad to have it happen like that, and it upsets you. Get a lot of emotion, and you're busy, you know, double guessing yourself. Why didn't I just sell it at 460? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to buy insurance that says if it goes below 460, somebody in the next year can buy it from me for 460. I have the right 
to sell this stock at 460 for the next year, no matter what the stock price is. Now, obviously, if the stock price is 500, I'm not going to sell it to somebody for 460. But if the stock price is 400 a year from now, I'll be very happy to sell it to that person for four, for 460. So this is an insurance policy like I would insure against my house burning down or my car getting wrecked. I'm going to buy that policy just like I would a car insurance or a house insurance. And that thing has a name in, in our world called a put option. I'm going to so buy a put option. Yep. To sell at a price set by you. Yep. At some time in the future. Yep. Also set by you. Yep. And it's set okay. by me just in this sense that the market provides me the whole bunch of time choices and a whole bunch of price choices. So I've got a huge bunch of choices I can make. I'm just happy to say right now, I'm going to choose the one that says one year. So next June, I have till next June. And uh, I have insurance now for a year at $460 a share. So I'm choosing that But it's that not that you price. can sell it any time in the next year. It's yeah, any time in the next year. Yep. An American option I can sell any time in the next year. Now, obviously, if it goes above 460 I'm not going to sell it. And probably I'm not going to just sell it if it goes to 424 uh, next month mm -hmm. because I've got an entire year to wait. And what I really want to have happen is it goes to 500. Yeah. And I want to benefit from the 460 to 500. I want that next 10%. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now this thing costs me money. In fact, let's just say this cost me $50 to buy this. Well, that's a bummer. Now I'm trying to lock it in so I've got a 460 sale, but in order to do that, I have to pay $50 out of my pocket right now, which means if I get a 460 sale, I'm really only getting a $410 net because it's cost me 50 to have that insurance. Well, that's kind of crummy, especially if it goes up, then I've burned for $50 for no reason, right? I bought this insurance policy and my house didn't burn down. Yeah. Well, that would suck. You with me so far? Yes. Okay. So I would like the insurance policy, but I would like it to be free. I don't want it to be $50. So I've got to find some money to pay for it with. This is where the call option comes in. There's an option called a call option that allows me to sell someone the right to buy my stock from me at a set price for a set period of time. In this case, I'm going to say you can buy my stock from me. Let me see now. I'm just going to go over and look at the trade screen and find out what it is exactly at this moment. You can buy my stock from me all the way from now until June at $500 a share, exactly what I wanted. You can buy it from me at $500 a share for the next year, and I will sell you the right to do that. And you're going to pay me $49.20. Cool. So now what I've done is I've created a situation where if the stock goes down over the next year and stays down, I've limited my loss to a sale of $460 and I've paid for that insurance policy, which costs 50 bucks, by limiting my upside to $500, which is where I want to sell it anyway. I think that's roughly intrinsic value. 
So if I'm happy to unload it at 500, even though it might go to 760, probably will, right? But I'm going to get out at intrinsic value because that's my investing strategy. And mm -hmm. I'm going to put this money somewhere else where it's much more likely to grow uh, from on sale to intrinsic value. Again, hopefully I'll find a place to put it. But I'm going to pay for my insurance policy that protects me from my downside by selling this call option, this right to someone to buy my stock at 500. And I get paid almost exactly what it costs me to sell the put. Ta-da! This is called a collar. I end up oh, the two perfect. I end up collecting from the call that I sold and paying to the put that I bought. And what I've done is I've limited my upside to 500, which I'm fine with over the next year. And I've limited my downside to 460. So now I have this thing locked in. And it's different than a stop order or a stop loss order because I can just sit there with it. Nobody's I don't have to exercise my put option until the last day. And then I'm going to get to collect that money. If it's below 460, I get the difference. So pretty Yeah, cool. I mean, it's uh, it's very interesting because you're obviously, you're putting a lot of emphasis on the insurance policy and limiting the downside, which right. I totally understand. Rule number one, don't lose money. Of course, that's what you're talking about. Right. You are also really limiting your upside. Right. So you would have to be quite certain about your intrinsic value calculations and that you're not going to revise them upward. Right. Which is what I keep thinking about that as companies change and grow, like, you know, that intrinsic value isn't a static thing. It's going to be revised every six months or annually. Well, and not in a giant way, unless something really major has changed with the story. And my version of this intrinsic value looks at the future of Chipotle and says, wow, if everything goes really, really well here, you know, they expand yeah, their restaurants, right. they have right. the extra we food 10 line. years out, I'm thinking back to my equation. Yeah. yeah. And we end up back here at five to 600 bucks. And so, um, I mean, this is me and I know that I'm going to be outbid by the rest of the market. Very likely they're going to run this thing up. And if I don't have another place to put the money or, you know, I could I could easily just, you know, maybe put in a stop loss here or something. But I don't want to do that. I want to I want to actually set this up so that I have a locked in range and it's very dependent on my very high degree of confidence in my ability to understand the value of this business, which, of course, I wouldn't even own the stock if I didn't already have a very high degree of confidence in my ability to know the value of the business. If I don't know right. the value, what am I doing with this thing in the first place? So obviously going into this, we own the stock with the belief that we understand the value of the business long term over the next year or so is probably five or 600 bucks. That's why we bought it at 300 in the first place. Well, that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. So now I still think it's that five to 600. But now as we're getting up there, I'm ready to liquidate. And so what is our downside here? If I liquidate this thing at 500, I got a basis in it around 270, 280, something like that. This is a $220 profit on a $280 position in, what, a year and a half or less or something like that. It's a phenomenally high rate of return. You should be very excited by that. And I'm locking it in. I'm locking it in without it costing me anything. 
And that's the point. You said options are really dangerous. Watch out. I just showed you how they're protecting me from danger. Hmm. Don't you think that's worth learning about? I think it's worth learning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of something useful to say. Danielle's like, going, hmm, puzzling. Like, hmm. Hmm. Her, her, her hand is on her chin. She's taking it on is. the thinker pose. It is. I'm thinking this right. out. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it for a week. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and after you've thought about it, you can come back with all of the reasons I shouldn't have done this. Can't wait to hear what that looks like. All right, honey. Until then, Sounds I think it's time good. we go play. What do you think? All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm like, whoa. Thanks, everybody. Bye. What am I up to this summer? I'm hitting the road. Next stop is Birmingham, Alabama because I'm taking my three-day transformational investing workshop to the Renaissance Resort on July 20th to 22nd. And here's the best part. I am giving a free scholarship to all the Invested Podcast listeners. So come and meet fellow Rule One investors and learn my personal strategies for picking great companies to invest in. It's going to be a great weekend. Claim your free scholarship at ruleoneinvesting.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoy it. And just figure this out on your own after we teach you to invest. Until next time, go play.